Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal, Merritt Goodwin, for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. This episode of Mixmasters features Shelby Eisenberg, the front of house engineer for the band Wage War. I first met Shelby in Fargo, North Dakota, where he and I were both mixing our bands at the same festival. And I started talking with him, and I quickly realized that I had to have him on the podcast. So the first thing I did when I got back from tour, I literally recorded this two days after getting back from a seven-week tour, was call Shelby and see if he'd be on the podcast, and man, am I glad he agreed to do it. I'm going to let the podcast speak for itself, and instead I'm going to address a couple of technical issues that we ran into on the podcast. First, I had to do a really sloppy overdub because we misspoke about the name of a festival, and I wanted to make sure that that was accurate in the podcast. So you'll hear it about halfway through, and it's it's rough, but it'll work. You'll get the idea. And then secondly, if everything sounds a little bit different, that's because we're on a completely new recording platform. Um, I'm going to avoid trying to rant about Apple's recent changes to their OS and, and how it's impacted a lot of the audio systems that we use. But just suffice it to say that we're now recording all of this on a PC, and we're using some different technology. So if things sound a little bit different, it's because there are some changes behind the scenes that we're working to correct. Uh, so bear with it, but hopefully it doesn't take away from the content of the podcast because this really is one of my most favorite episodes. So without further ado, here's Shelby. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hope to see you out and about soon. And until then, stay safe. Hey everybody, it's Steve from Mixmasters, joined today by Shelby Eisenberg. I met Shelby while he was on tour with Wage War, and they were touring with Beartooth. And we were out at uh, a couple of festivals together, and we got to talking and chatting, and I thought it'd be really fun to have him on the podcast. So, Shelby, thank you for joining the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I'm a small fan, been following it for, you know, over the last little bit, over pandemic and stuff, and so it's cool to be on, finally. I'm blushing. Thanks. Uh, thanks for those nice words. So I met you, as I mentioned, real briefly uh, on tour. We met first in Fargo, North Dakota at uh, Rock the Rails, I think it was called. Right. Mm-hmm. And then again, I saw you at Incarceration. Mm-hmm. Your mixes absolutely crush. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit about how you got started in music. Um, you know, the typical format, like you mentioned, you've heard the podcast. So you sort of know how this goes. What got you started in music? man for music for me was always just a obsession started with my dad my dad was a rock and roll guy um growing up he plays guitar and sings so um it was always inspiration you know through family um I started out going to dad's band practice when I was a young kid so I always wanted to be in a band play guitar drums or sing or whatever um and of course growing up in middle school high school I played in a few different hardcore punk bands and whatever and played shows and did some small you know, weekender tours, nothing too crazy, but, you know, it was just being a fun, you know, a young kid 
but you know of course like you know many stories go you play in a band one doesn't catch the other does a little bit and you know it you know it's how it goes for me I was always the the gear guy amongst friends I was always also really uh kind of a gear nerd I always had cool guitars and cool drums I worked in some music stores around town uh, like the mom and pop guitar shop kind of thing so I was always wheeling and dealing guitars and stuff so I was always just super into equipment and and gear and how it all worked and plugged in just kind of from the start I think naturally becoming a sound guy was like the unplanned thing that happens to the best and the most you know all of us you know really is it starts out with a guitar or something before you know it, you got a case full of microphones and you know all this crap so I mean it was a real natural just I grew up with music um I think the whole sound guy thing was kind of more of uh, amongst an accident of just like I said just being a, a band guy and then through the grapevine you know you end up at front of house one way or another um it was fortunate that towards the end of high school I started working for a, a small sound company here in town and um just being like the backline guy just pushing the cases, unloading the guitar amp, setting up a drum set, wrapping cables, getting crushed in the back of the truck, pinching my fingers, you know, all that stuff. And then before your boss is, before you know it, the boss is like, oh, you're going to do monitors today. And you're like, oh, shit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it just was kind of a very natural um, transition for me. And here I am. I've been all over the globe and it's a, it's a blast. I mean, couldn't ask for a better job. <laughs> so. No, I'm learning that I was the regional guy, as everybody knows, for years, years, my whole life. And now I'm just starting to get to tour around and, you know, sharing some of these experiences. But where do you call home these days? Uh, so home is Jupiter, Florida for me. It's in West Palm Beach. Um, it's been home for uh, almost ever, as, as far as I can remember. I've been in South Florida my whole life. So I've been I've been down here since I was a young kid. So this is really home. It's hard to get it's hard to peel me away from this town because it's um, two miles from the beach it's sunny year round. We can gig outdoor. There's no snow. You know, we get a couple hurricanes a year if we're lucky, but you know, it's, uh, it's more just like a couple of weeks off work, if you know what I'm saying. So you do have to deal with sand and I'm not sure that I would like that better than snow, especially with gear. I don't love dragging subs through, uh, the sand and I, it definitely does happen. Nothing like a, a good old, uh, gig on the beach and you know, some double eighteens through the sand you know, your snake and oof, it's a fun cleanup. God forbid it rains. <laughs> so is that where you sort of uh, cut your teeth with doing, getting into live sound then was for that local production company in West Palm area? Yeah, pretty much was around here and, you know, just bouncing around through a couple of different small companies, nothing too crazy. Like we didn't even have, you know, line arrays, a bunch of old point source boxes, everything weighed three, four, 500 pounds, bunch of old Midas analog consoles and whatnot and um so i i really kind of learned old school hard way as a young teenager uh and then wage war happened to me because the bass player it was in one of my pop punk bands growing up so just kind of the natural you know your friend joins a band they do well and oh i have a friend that kind of does sound and he asked me if i wanted to come and i jumped in the van one day and they never sent me home knock on wood <laughs> so yeah that's really kind of the story of how I got into Wage War. And uh, how long ago was that that you got started with Wage War? Um, I did my first few shows with them at the uh, end of 2016. Um, they always do like a usually do I should say like a holiday type show at the end of the year, during like before Christmas time. 
uh, in their hometown. Um, so they invited me to come out and do that at the end of 2016. Um, and then it was mid 2017, they did a tour with Every Time I Die. Um, and that was like my first official tour with them. And that was kind of like my first tour ever, my first real expo uh, experience in the touring community because um, I just was a local sound guy. And I use that term lightly, <laughs> more like just a backline kind of guy, monitor tech, light front of house stuff. Uh, so Wage War was kind of my first real band to take me out and trust me, like, all right, go out front and and kill it. And uh, yeah, I mean, that first tour was, oof, it was, you know, on the sound side, probably a little rough looking back at it in comparison. Now I learned a lot of things really fast. And I mean, that, that's what it's all about is getting out there and just trial by fire. You know, you can read all the books and watch all the podcasts and, you know, you know, watch every YouTube video on every concert or whatever, but until you get in front of the stick in the knob, you never, you know, so I think just getting out there the first couple tours was the real big eye opener to sound like, okay, this is what, you know, a gate does and what a compressor does, and this is how to EQ out feedback or whatever it is, you know, it's just been a total ride figuring it out, figuring it all out. So, what were those first couple of tours like? What were the venue sizes? And I imagine you were on house consoles. And what were some of the things that you were really running up against, you know, and, and having to figure out quickly? So, that first ETID tour I did um, was fairly um, small. Now, ETID is a type of band uh, that they can do bigger, small, and everywhere in between. Um, and this particular tour, I think, was just the smaller run and i use that term smaller in the sake of like three to four or five hundred cap rooms some there was a handful that were maybe a little bigger but some small rooms where it was like a point source pa maybe a sub or two underneath the stage um a couple monitor mixes three to four monitor mixes if you're lucky and you know the most venues had like a like a m32 x32 out front of house um you know it did monitors from front house type thing a couple of venues had like the Allen and Heath Q mix or something like that. Um, nothing too fancy, a few analog boards. So yeah, real cut your teeth type stuff, real, real rock and roll dive. I don't want to say dive bar, but you know, rock and roll club stuff. Yeah. I got a taste of those on this tour that we did with butcher babies, which is where I ran into you. And we were talking about it before the podcast, uh, the 200 to 400 cap rooms. And yeah, like we were talking about you, you figure out things pretty quickly, right. You know, going from the big festival stage outdoors where you've got a hundred plus L acoustics boxes. Yeah. You can do anything and it's going to sound okay out there, but, uh, yeah, you get into those little clubs and it's a whole different story. Oh yeah, you got symbols in your face, and you got to figure out how to get guitar up over the crowd, but not sound like a chainsaw. And you got to get your vocals to not be screaming feedback when they're whispering. But then there's yeah, it's a whole, it's damage control, like we said. It's it's combat audio, so you're just in there fighting the mix and and beating yourself up. But the way I kind of look at those gigs is, you know, once you get your couple songs in and you know, you're, I don't want to use the term dialed in, but as dialed in as you think it could be. And you look around and people are nodding their heads, banging their heads, jumping around. Kids are moshing around. If it's that kind of a band, you know, whatever people are buying t-shirts, you're winning. You're absolutely winning. You know, as long you got sound off the stage, you can hear the vocal. You're absolutely winning. You're having fun, you know, call it a day. Cause I've uh, been through the same thing where 
those tours where you just have some of those rooms that will beat you up night after night and you sit in there and you get in your head about it, you know, while you're sitting there laying in the bunk thinking, oh, what could have I done better, this and that, and the other. And you, at the end of the day, it's the variables of a small, junky old room and you got to deal with it and you deal with it. And uh, on to the next, you know, they're not all winners and is what it is sometimes. Yeah. Anybody who listens knows I like to self-deprecate. I blame it on being a Lutheran raised kid from Wisconsin. We we give ourselves the most harsh critiques, but same thing. There were a couple of venues where I just, you know, had my head in my hands and, right. you know, afterwards people are like, oh my God, it sounded great. You know, we come to this place all the time and it never sounds that good. And, and I'm just like, really? <laughs> wow. Right. You're like, excuse me. What did, did you listen to the same thing I listened to tonight? Cause, and you know what though, again, it's same thing. It's those are the nights, you know, you're winning because it's, it's like you, you, you might be sitting there shaking your head, but somebody will come up to you and be like, oh, it was great. We had a great time. And you're just like, you just know that you did the best you could. It did end up sounding quote unquote great and you did your job. So, okay. So um, when I saw you with wage war, you were on a Midas pro one or pro two pro one. Mm -hmm. When did you uh, invest in a console for yourself? What, what made you make that leap and, and what, what drove you to the Midas? So I did my first tour. Like I said, that ETID tour without a console, just totally dry. I don't think I even brought a microphone to be honest. Like, I think I might've had a couple 57s in my backpack, maybe, but we did this little run came up with, um, oh shoot, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the band. It doesn't matter. Uh, another tour came up pretty close after that where the band wanted to use, they had some older Sennheiser G2 in-ear units that they wanted to start using. That whole, you know, everybody does the X32 rack thing. And I was like, well, if they're going to invest in the X32 rack for these inner units they have, I might as well spend the 12 or 1500 bucks, whatever they used to cost the little X32 compacts before the price jump and whatever Sweetwater discount you could get for 10% off on their, you know, website, you know, internet thing. So I bought myself a little X32 compact just to do it and uh, did the whole sharing head amp gain through their X32. And it worked out great. It worked out fantastic. They could hear themselves in their, in their ears. Um, I didn't need to do stage wedges anymore. I could get a little more headroom out of those junky PAs we mentioned. Cause you know, once you have a couple monitors on stage two, that's taking even that much, that much more, a little bit of headroom away from you out front where it's like, it helped me mix a little more clear out front, which was awesome. So I did that whole X32 thing for a few tours. And then we went out to Europe um, with a mice and men. And I brought my X32 out there and that's where I met Brian Campbell, who at the time was mixing a Mice and Men. Fantastic engineer, absolute monster mix, great dude. And he owned a Pro 2C, Midas Pro 2C at the time. And he had it out there with him and I was scratching my head like, oh wait, so this isn't a rental? Like you own this yourself? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, that must have been a lot of money. Like how... And, and then you flew it out here too. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we freighted it out here with the rest of our gear. It just kind of made sense. And the, a little like, and obviously at the time, the Moisin men was a little uh, uh, ahead of the game than, than wage were, you know? So I was like, oh, I, I could never be able to afford a, a Midas Pro series or whatever. And then we came home from that tour and I was sitting on Craigslist and I saw a Midas Pro one used on Craigslist for, you know, X amount of, you know, thousand dollars. And I was like, well, I really want one. It'd be cool to have one. I got all these guitars sitting in my bedroom that I'm not using. I could sell a couple of my guitars and 
pay for this pro series. So I just did it. You know, I had a couple like Les Pauls or something, which were my babies. But I was like, you know, I'm not the rock star I wanted to be. I'm not playing in a band. I'm doing sound in a band. So I might as well tour with a real console. So I just made the investment and um, I bought the Surface um, from some church. It was a it was a church like an hour north of me. Um, so it was really clean. It had the case and everything. Um, so it wasn't like a sketchy deal or anything. Um, and then I had to find um, a stage box. Um, and then I found a couple of used uh, Midas 153 stage boxes, which give me 16 inputs and eight outputs per box. So altogether, I have 32 inputs by 16 outputs on stage, um, which is plenty for an average rock band. So for less than 10 grand, you know, I have a absolutely kick-ass system that you know at 96 kilohertz sample rate and all that yada 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 so at least i can show up to a festival or whatever and uh hang with the big boys so to speak um and sound great so yeah i just kind of i made the jump and ever since then it's been fantastic so you've been on the pro one for uh like two three years then roughly or yeah about three years now that was like 2018 was when i bought it and then of course we did warp tour in 2018 and that was minus pro two so it was great to like i just bought the pro series and then we were on warp tour which was like awesome i was like oh pro twos this is fantastic and then the next few tours was all pro series and stuff and so it's been it's been cool and then we then we introduced the whole waves rig um that you saw i have a whole wave super rack rig that uh, i use with it and um so yeah it just it's been it's been good yeah, you actually sort of read my mind because when you were talking about the Pro 1, I was going to ask if you found yourself wanting for more effects processing because I know, I think the engine that they come with, you can have, what, eight eight engines or something like that? or Six. It's actually, six, yeah. yeah, six engines. So, yeah, actually, speaking of, um, I guess I, I could uh, officially say on the podcast, uh, podcast that I have uh, made the official jump to DLive. Um, I did make the investment in a system. Uh, just because I do need some more effects processing and busing and, and whatnot, even though I do truly love the sound of the Minus Pro series, will always, always love it. Uh, my the theater I work at at home, my house gig is a Pro series gig, so it's my heart will always be there. But for the sake of you know flying around and X Y Z, you know the, the D Live system, the little guy, the fifteen hundred that everybody's using, just makes the most sense. So. I uh, pulled the trigger on that uh, a couple weeks ago, last week actually, and I'm just patiently waiting for my Surface to come in the mail, and uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes once I get it. Welcome to the dark side. I feel I feel like Danny Harvey and me should get a commission if uh, Alan and Heath is listening. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all it's all your and Danny's fault because you know it's funny because I, I actually did a tour in Europe with August Burns Red, and. Uh, August Burns Red owns one as well as you know and Chris loves it and raves it uh, raves all about it and he let me use it for those 20 some odd shows and it was fantastic I think I was a little too intimidated uh, at like really exploring it then because I was still so just like even just getting used to the pro series at the time and so kind of like changing my workflow and even just being able to put the whole like put anything anywhere or change all these effects like just all the comps and stuff right off the thing was it was cool but I was a little reluctant to do it on the fly because I just didn't have that quality time pre-tour to sit there in my bedroom like how does this work oh okay I see so yeah that was kind of 
I, I did a whole tour on it and it was great. I mean, it, it sounded fantastic. I just was a little afraid of it, if that makes any sense. Cause you know, some things were just intimidating at first. And then looking back at it now, I'm like, man, I really wish I just, you know, got in there or like had the time just to sit there and fart around on it and, and break the scene, fix the scene, break the scene. Ooh, okay. Don't do that. Okay. This is how it works. You know how it goes. You just need to break it a million times and learn how to fix it before you get onto a show and be like, Oh shit, I actually broke it. And now I'm screwed. Uh, yeah. I'm a real visual learner. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. And it is, it is crazy because I've been sitting on my D live since before the pandemic, the last tour that we did before the pandemic, I was on an M32. Right. And I, I had zero multi-tracks because I didn't have the capability to multi-track um, on that tour. And so I bought the D-Live and I just sat there twiddling my thumbs, you know, and I borrowed multi-tracks from friends and I really got comfortable with it. Right. But that very first show, Fargo, North Dakota, you know, on a big PA in front of a bunch of people. And it's like, oh, here we go. Yep. This is the real deal. <laughs> yep. So, yep. So I get it. Uh, and then you're just scared to death. Like, okay, if something goes wrong, I routed something, you know, I'm not in my studio or whatever, where there's no, right, pressure. Yeah. how do I get to it yesterday? Right. And that's, and that's the biggest thing about being a touring sound guy or sound person at all. It's just being able to fix your mistakes immediately and efficiently. Yeah. That's, that's key is just knowing your routing, keeping things, as simple as possible so when shit does hit the fan you can you know <laughs> fix it you you're making me want to jump all over the place because like keeping stuff simple reminds me of the conversation we had around looming the drum cables and oh right yeah your approach versus mine i want to talk about that in a few minutes but going back to your uh midas rig that i saw you with you were using um super rack did you have a dedicated wave server or were you running everything through a laptop or or both or how are you doing it so the way the whole that whole system works is i have the clark technic uh network bridge so it has a maddie card in the back of it so it converts from aes to maddie and then i have the waves maddie mgb io so that's connected to a switch and then i have the wave server one server to the switch and then just my laptop to the switch so it's all pretty healthy you know everything is run off the server and to be frank i'm i'm pretty minimalistic with the wave stuff i use it only on a couple things like vocals and and the guitars all the drums and everything else is all the midas um it's literally just to be honest some c6 and the axe renaissance just because it's cool yeah to be to really just tighten things up to be frank like I'm literally using one plugin on on those few channels. And then my master bus, I have a C6 and an API 2500. So like at the most two plugins on my master bus and a plugin on my vocals and a plugin on my guitars. Um, so at the moment, I'm very minimal with it um, because the Midas does sound great. If my Waves rig went down, I, I don't want to say I could care less, but I would be fine. I just have to uninsert those couple inserts and maybe just bump up, you know, the, the sticks, just a decibel to make up for the makeup gain that was on those compressors or whatever. And I would be absolutely fine, but yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's, it's fairly simple. Getting it set up is not so simple, but once it's set up and everything is healthy and likes each other, it's easy and it works every day. Um, so knock on wood, it, it 
it was solid for me every day on that last run. I didn't really have any hiccups unless I accidentally plugged in a cable backwards, which I did once or twice. We, we've all been there. Yeah. Do you see yourself using the Waves rig with the DLive once you get out with the DLive or what, what are your plans there? Absolutely. I think I'm going to, now that I'm a little more familiar, of course, with Super Rack and more comfortable with kind of how um, just even that GUI works and, and whatnot, um, I think I'll dive in a little more um, just kind of on everything, even maybe on some uh, buses and maybe even just doing reverbs and delays or something. The new Wage War record has a lot of really cool vocal production that I would like to see if I can't re replicate and reproduce live and it not just be like tracks or something. Lots of like cool, like down tune vocals and vocal distortion stuff. That would be really cool to actually say, yeah, that's all me. Um, but again, <laughs> easier said than done. So yeah, I, I definitely want to dive in a lot more and also use it for like uh, tracking, multi-tracking and virtual sound check. And that's one of the main reasons why, of course, to have, you know, the, the waves card on that, on that surface is just for how easy the, the multi-tracking is in and out is so simple. Yeah, that's been a game changer for me because I have I have the um, Super Rack card in the Surface, and then we have Dante in the Mix Rack for our playback mm -hmm. tracks. So having those two completely distinct from one another allows me to multi-track record and then do virtual sound checks, which a lot of times on this last tour, the venues that we were in were really small, and we wouldn't really have a chance to set up our drum kit because there may have been a local opener or something like that. and. Right. Yeah. You know, there's no room. So I would just throw up a virtual sound check, get a rough idea. Call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. And then we could, you know, hit the, hit the ground running out of the gate and be pretty close to where we needed mm -hmm. to be. So I think you're going to really enjoy having that capability. Yeah. Virtual sound check. There was a, a time once upon a time <clears throat> before I had the waves rig, I had one of the RPM dynamics um, boxes um, that I used for virtual sound check with my pro one, which was so much fun. Uh, we were on a tour with like Amir and Stick to Your Guns. I think that was the tour I used it on, uh, where that became real handy because it was, uh, we were like two of four. Um, so we were like way in the middle, no sound check time. Like just, I was lucky to even have front of house room kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, that virtual sound check really saved my butt. Same thing on the, uh, the Real Friends tour. I went out and I toured with Real Friends uh, once. Uh, we did a tour with them in Newfound Glory. And um, I had that little rig out with me. And what actually helped me was kind of the same thing. We couldn't set up the drums, but what helped me was since all their guitars were wireless and their vocals, like their main vocal was wireless at least. So at least I set up their rack, I would tune the system really quick and I'd have them throw on their guitars and just chug, 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 riff, 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 you know, at least for 20 seconds to make sure, okay, I got guitars in there. I got my center vocal, all my wireless stuff in my tracks. I could at least light off for a second and hear it through the PA. And then that least the only surprise is drums and those few hardwired vocals and stuff, you know, which is really helpful having at least wireless instruments and, and whatnot. So. Yeah. I like having wireless uh, vocal mics for everything because I can just take them back to front of house and, you know, do my quick vocal check or whatever. And I don't have to have the band up on stage and I can, right. you know, mm -hmm. ring it out for feedback and right. Yeah. Technology is so good these days. Right, exactly. Anybody could do our jobs. I know. Or wait, no. <laughs> yeah, and like in theory, and it's it's so true though. It's my favorite question when I come home from a big tour, when I see my friends that I went to high school with or something, 
Um, they're like, oh, that's so cool. How are you doing that? How'd you get that job? Or even fans might stop you, you know, from front of house. Like, how did you get into doing this? And I mean, it's anybody can do it in, in theory. Like, well, you know, you can learn how to play your damn video game. You can learn how to push these buttons. I'll tell you that much. It's, I guess the variable is, you know, how much time are you going to give into training your ears to, to do that, you know? And, and that's what it is. Speaking of anybody can do this, I'll tease a past episode so people who may not have listened closely. Uh, Brian Hardiswick had a great story about how he started getting into venues and the tricks that he did to get sort of into the industry. So I'll uh, I'll just tease that and let people go back and listen to Brian Hardiswick's episodes. Okay, yeah, right. I love Brian. He's a, he's a good dude. I've met him once or twice. I believe. Yeah, that, he's got a motor. Holy cats. He is uh, always moving and always trying to improve and, and, you know, do all sorts of good things. But back to your stuff. So we, I, I alluded earlier about the differences that we take towards looming our drum mics, for example. Right. So I did the traditional route, which is I bought four and eight channel multi-conductor snake cable mm-hmm. and did different length whips, you know, for floor tom, rack tom rack tom snare top snare bottom and i always ended up with a spaghetti mess at the end of the night even though i use tech flex on everything Mm -hmm. and i was talking to you at incarceration and the way you do it is really interesting do you want to walk us through what you do for your drum looms yeah so i got this idea just kind of sitting around backstage one day staring at the drum kit so you know like when you're between like you're not headlining right you're in the middle somewhere you're at a festival and you don't have a drum riser to set your drum kit up it's just the freaking the kick drums over here the four toms are over there there's a cymbal over that way and everything's just kind of spread about um and at least your your mics might be able to like you have your clip-on mics on your toms and your snare or whatever which is great a great head start but of course then you have like you said your big old spaghetti pile um, and I was thinking, well, how can I like leave everything patched, but it obviously not be patched. So I was thinking, okay, two channel snakes, like what instrument has two microphones on it? Like the kick drum has two microphones. The snare drum has two microphones. There's two four toms. Well, that's, that's two individual drums, but they're close enough. Right. So I was like, I'll make a bunch of two channel snakes so I can plug in the kick in and out and then wrap up that little excess tail that five feet of tail and put it on, you know, wrapped around the kick drum, the snare, I'll just wrap that five, six feet up, put it on top of the snare drum. The four toms, I unpatch one and then put that two channel on one of those four toms. And then the like hi-hat is just a single and then the overheads are a single one, you know? So that way, at least the stuff that has two sources on it or, you know, two microphones right next to each other, um, they get a two channel little, little snake, XLR snake. And it's easy enough to where when the kit is kind of tangled up spider web that uh, backstage, you can just leave those sources patched in. And then when you all, and then when your drummer pulls his kit out, all you got to do is yank it down and, and throw it in the sub snake and boom, you're right there. You, you're not like looking for, you know, cables. You're not sitting there unwrapping a bunch of singles or 10 footers. That's another thing that drives me nuts is when you get to a house and they give you, you know, 10, 20 or 15 foot xlrs and i'm like man i need to go three or four feet you know do you have like 10 five footers you know that's another thing is you know for things like kick snare and hi-hat 
Ractom, the stuff that's really close to that little subsnake drop, and you can use five, six feet of cable, use as, the shortest amount of cable as possible. Um, and that's just me being a complete cable neat freak, OCD freak. I just love having a super clean, neat stage. Um, so that way, you know, pack up is easier and, you know, faster. And I mean, of course, you know, everybody says it's all about the out and it's true. It's all about the out and being clean, neat, and, you know, organized. Um, so for me, just if I can do anything to kind of cheat and make, you know, if I could wrap one two channel snake instead of a bunch of individual snakes, it just makes it easier. Yeah. I'm totally stealing that idea. I've already bought the two channel cable and uh i'm remaking my looms in the next couple yeah. of days so thanks for that tip yeah and shout out to uh brad at bestronics for he does like all my cable work uh bestronics is like anytime i need an xlr random cat5 kind of thing i even have a couple like two channel cat5 patches um just for like my waves rig that's like anything that can cut out milliseconds of time during setup or, or tear down because you're you know, you only got a 15 minute window and you got to get the heck out of the way so the headliner can get on the stage and those moments count and, and really help. And if you can get off stage and in five minutes, the headliner is going to love you, you know, and at least in, in theory, I would, I would hope so. I think, uh, so I think, yeah. I think they love you guys for different reasons, uh, a, <laughs> because you kick ass and you're, you're super solid. But yeah, yeah, getting off stage is always a, a good thing. And also another shout out for Brad from BTPA Bestronics, uh, btpa.com, I think is their website. But he he made my uh, my EtherCon snake for me. Yep. I had a different different one and I was having troubles with it. Brian Campbell, again. <laughs> God, I love yep, that guy. Man. He He's like, call Brad. And you know, within three days, I had a, a brand new cable uh, EtherCon snake on a spool and the thing has been absolutely flawless. Yeah. And again, shout out to Brian because he, so that a mice and mentor I mentioned uh, a while ago, that was where I learned about Bestronics for the first time. They had a full BTPA rig and I was like, oh man, this whole multi-pin thing, the fly rack, the cubby racks, all of it made so much sense. Um, so then I came home from that tour and I started getting quotes from him. And then of course, all the wage war stuff is like I mentioned, it's all Bestronics gear. Everything flies all over the world. And it's just fantastic to be so for uh, for anybody who doesn't know I'm what they call we what they call a, a one man show I don't have uh techs or crew yet it's really just kind of me so to be able to throw everything in a little cubby rack or a, or an SKB or pelican or whatever and and go is just fantastic so he's he's the guy the go it's like we rehearsed this, but we really didn't. We we got on Zoom and, and I was like, we'll just run and talk. But uh, I did want to talk next about your cubby system that you've got because that's also really pretty ingenious when I saw that. Right. So can you describe, you know, your your stage rack or your cubby rack rig mm -hmm. and how it has that versatility? And I don't want to give too much away. I'll just let you sort of what gave you the idea for it and what, you know, how did you come about getting it and you know, some of the neat things about it. Right. So the whole Bestronics rig has been, like I just kind of mentioned, was a dream ever since that of mice tour. Um, I saw how convenient it was and how, how great it was for them. And then of course, just looking on their website and their Instagram and whatnot, all their social medias, seeing all the, the work they did. Um, of course, just lying there in bed at night 
thinking, you know, oh, it'd be so cool if you could, if you did this or if you did that, you could put these in a case and you could put that in a case. And I'm sitting there thinking and thinking and thinking how, you know, what would be the most efficient for all these, you know, all the all this gear that we have. So initially we got just the fly rig the because we have the X32 rack and the in-ears and the tracks rig and all that stuff. So all that got put in the little cubby case in the cubby uh, little fly racks and pelicans and stuff because we had a bunch of like a European tour and Australian tour and stuff. Um, so we flew that all over the globe. And then this tour, this past one we just did with um, Beartooth was the first US tour we've um, done with that rig. And I was thinking, well, you know, when we fly that rig, it's like 10 or 12 Pelican cases with the, all the cabling and stuff that we have, which is a lot of Pelicans. Not complaining, it's just a lot of Pelicans to be flopping around the trailer and, and, and whatnot. Um, so I was thinking it would be awesome if it was just kind of like an all-in-one system, right? Like that makes the most sense. Plus you see all the big guys do it. You, you see like all the big headliners, they have those double and triple wide cases that have both front of house and monitor world IO in it, those split and some, some wireless gear. And I was thinking, well, why the hell don't I just do that with the fly racks? We got to make a double wide cubby case and I'll throw it all in there, add a drawer in it and call it a day. So that's what, that's what I did. I just kind of thought, let's do that. And again, it just, it really comes down to how can I be faster, more efficient out of the way, less deads too. you know, do I want 12 dead pelicans out backstage cluttering up backstage area, or do I want two lids, you know, that I can lid the thing up really quick. So yeah, is the big giant mothership case necessarily flyable all over the world? I would say not. The thing probably weighs four or 500 pounds if I had to guess, um, unless I freighted it. But at least all that gear can get pulled right out, thrown to pelicans. We can take it all over the world. When we're here in the States, I can throw it in that mothership rack and push it, push it into right in any venue and be set up in literally within minutes. In fact, not to toot my own horn here, but I was loading the trailer every single night before Beartooth hit the stage with a 20 minute changeover. So it was cool to just be out of the way and, and be packed up. I do want to talk a little bit about some questions that I have about the cubby system and how you do your interconnects, but for people who may not have seen your rig or may not be following along with it, what you essentially have are like the SKB 6U, 4U, drop-in racks that that normally sit inside of like a pelican or an skb case and they're standard 19 inch rack like 13 inches deep or whatever and then they hold 6u or 4u worth of gear and you lift them in and out of the pelican normally and then stack them alongside the stage if you would use them like in the traditional manner using air quotes around traditional so would the cubby system like you said you've got that double wide almost like a wardrobe or like a guitar vault Mm -hmm. And then you've got specific sized cutouts in there to hold those Pelican or those those 6U and 4U uh, drop-in racks. But rather than dropping them in, they sort of slide in so it's like on shelves. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that helps clear it up a little bit for anybody that may not be as familiar. And if if you do have questions, you know, go go check it out on BTPA or go, go check out Shelby's social media and, and you'll see some photos there. Oh, yeah. It's all over the place. You can't miss it. How do you handle the interconnection for the cubbies? Like, I imagine you've got your DL153s in, you know, one 6U 
rack, and then you've got your ears in another 6U rack, and then you've got your wireless uh, in another 6U rack. Mm -hmm. Are you just running individual XLRs between everything, or do you have like the multi-pin connectors in the racks and you just like do a multi-pin cable, or how do you do that side of things? It is all like kind of like a multi-pin system that that Brad from Bestronics made. Um, <clears throat> so if you look at it on the left side from top to bottom, um, it starts with our uh, IEM slash uh, tracks rack. So it has like a Motu Cubby, uh, Motu interface and our Sennheiser G4s in there. Um, and then this middle space is an X32 rack. Um, and then we have a little single uh, Shore ULXD or QLXD um, wireless mic um, in there. And then on the bottom side is the uh, Behringer S32 IO box. Um, so what Brad had done is on the back of the S32 IO box is this split. Um, so there's a multi-pin breakout to go to front of house. Um, and then all the patching is done right into the back of that. There's a Cat5 that patches straight to the little X32 rack above that. So as just as basic, you know, very simple console to stage box, basically. Um, and then from the IEMs and the tracks rig, there's multi-pins. So from the, from the S32 stage rack to the IEM, there's a multi-pin to multi-pin cable. And then from the Motu tracks, um, there's a multi-pin to eight-channel fan out. Um, so we have eight, up to eight channels of um, tracks outputting from the Motu into the uh, split. Um, and then, like I said, there's a 32 fan that goes right over to my Midas IO that's on the right side. So on the right side of the case, there's um, top to bottom, there's um, a, Kemper, a rack with a Kemper and has the three guitar wireless channels. Um, and then under that, there's a cubby that has two Kempers, so three Kempers total, three guitar wireless channels total. Um, and then under that is my Midas IO. So Guitar World, IEMs, tracks. Um, the monitor console and my front of house IO all lives in one big mothership uh, case that uh, everybody in the band calls the God Rack. Um, there's a little cubby in there that I have um, my little Sennheiser paddles, my antennas, and all the wireless packs. So I have, um, there's five in-ear units. I have seven packs, so I have two spare packs. If anybody, like our tour manager, will listen to one. Um, and then there's a spare pack for, uh-oh. So yeah, it's nice to have a couple spare spare packs and just have a really nice solid simple simple setup and it looks like a lot that's another thing it, it looks like a lot because and it, it kind of is but it really isn't it's just three guitars and an IEM rig when you look in a tracks rig when it comes down to it it's very very basic it's straightforward all the connecting in the back is like I mentioned uh multi-pin the guitar channels since they're just they're just stereo left and right I do just have individual like shorty uh, five or six foot XLRs that I do want to make a uh, little, uh, what, are, what you call it, stereo channels, little two channel snakes out of the sake of being neat and clean. But yeah, I mean, it's all, it's as clean as possible back there just because I made, I made sure all the cable lengths had a little more length than usual. So if I needed to spread out those racks for whatever reason, there's like 15 feet of my multi-pin cable on, on all of them. Uh, so there's kind of a lot of excess cable in the back of the rack, unfortunately, but I kind of like that just for any uh -oh situation. If I had to spread something out in oblong places, I, I wasn't tied down to three feet of length or something. 
that's part of the part of the problem I have with my current drum loom is I built some extra length into the main length of the loom just in case mm-hmm. I couldn't have my stage box as close as I wanted to. But after these last thirty seven or thirty eight shows or whatever, right. I never the mission is always to get that stage box right there. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and I always was able to even on the most tricky of stages uh, from either the biggest stage to the smallest stage. I always had my stage box right where I wanted it to. So. When I rebuild these looms, they're going to be the exact right length, and I can always add another, you know, shorty patch cable if I yeah. if I need to move it or whatever. So right, yeah. See, it's nice. Like when I don't have all the gear in the, in the cubby rack, it's nice because it's not so close and so tight together. It's but it, when it is in that big god rack, it's just I have to coil everything up tighter so it can be kind of just live in there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's kind of the only I would say downside to it is just i do have a lot of excess cable on the back of it just because that's how i have my cable rig made but it's literally not a problem it just kind of looks a little less pleasing as it does on the front (laughs) if you know what i mean uh saved my life so much it's made my in and out so easy for being a one guy to push it in just pull off the doors all i got to do is plug in the power turn the firmans on i set out my wireless antennas and plug in my snake and that's it really i'm already i'm in the house so it's great what are you doing for your wireless paddles are you doing like the lp claw on the on the god rack or are you putting them on stands and you've got like a 25 foot coax cable or whatever it depends where i have to place that rack or the gear in general um so originally i just had like a few 10 or 15 foot little BNC cables thinking I could just put the stands right. Like I was going to be able to put the rack right in the wing every day, not realizing, Oh shoot, you know, I'm going to have to put it kind of way out of the way some days. Um, not always being a headliner, you know, of course. So halfway through the tour, I did have to end up, I ordered some 50 foot BNC cables from Brad uh, and a couple longer sub snakes just because I needed them anyways. Um, so I do have the option now to like, if I have to put that rack in Zimbabwe, I can, put you know the antennas on paddles on deck on stage run some longer 50 foot uh bnc antenna cables out to them um and my sub snakes out to deck and and be fine and then there's the days where i do there's plenty of wing space and i can put the rack right there and i'll just use my shorty little 10 foot bncs and not have to break out all that cable and and whatnot so really just kind of depends on what the stage setup is like and I have options. Same thing with sub snakes. Like I, I just mentioned, I ordered a couple longer sub snakes because of the festivals. I needed a, a longer downstage vocal snake and then some normal venues. I don't need 75 feet of downstage snake. I need the, I have like a 30 foot snake. So it's like, it just kind of depends on the day now as uh, since I have a couple options, I can like, oh, if I need a shorter cable, I'll use this. If I need the longer one, I'll pull this out. So it's always nice to like on tour, depending on, what you have going on have options of if you need a longer sub snake or if you need a longer bnc or antenna whatever um you can and as far as like you mentioned the lp clause if it's short i'll just clip them right on to the you know side of the case if i have the correct line of sight or you know whatever i'll clip them right there or if it's kind of like a wonky setup or if there's like a pole or something in my way i'll put one on a, a stand so it really just kind of depends on the line of sight and what i have going on but it, it it just kind of varies really. So yeah, that flexibility is great. And speaking about the downstage, um, we are using Kemper pedal boards now. We don't even have the rack units, just the the Kemper 
floor unit. So it's literally like just a floor unit and that's everything. So I built a couple of multi-channel snakes for those. So, you know, mm. it sends the guitar signal back to the wireless system, or I'm sorry, it takes the, the wireless system from side stage, sends it to the Kemper as an input. Then in that same snake, the XLR goes back to the, to the right. stage rack. And I built uh, Merit. We are normally our, our racks at stage right. And so I built Merit like a, a 30 foot loom. Mm-hmm. And I built Randy, our bass player who's stage left, I built him a 60 foot loom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's no way we're going to need anything longer than this. And you needed something longer than that. Oh, yeah. We got to incarceration. That stage was so, so big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's so funny you mentioned that. The same thing happened to us on that tour. So like, oh, remind me to touch back to that Kemper floor model thing because there was a couple of things which I'm sure you ran into by now that you may or may not like um, about it having it all on, on the stage versus in the rack. But same thing, like I was running into cat five length problems with the remote switches for Kempers because I have them some like 30s and some 60 foot cat fives for each of them. And I was like, there's no way they're going to run at a 60 feet. And there was a few like just regular, not even like the big festivals, just some of like the House of Blue shows and stuff that we were doing on the run. They were like a couple, one or two of them would come up to me and be complain like, oh, I'm running out of room. Like I'm, I'm just coming up shy of where I need to land. And I'm like, there's no freaking way you've got 60 feet of cable there. And then I'd chase it down and be like, you're not kidding, huh? And then so I actually ordered them, I think hundreds now. So now they have options of like 30 60 or 100 foot and i was like if you guys run at 100 foot of of cat five getting stage i can't help you anymore like i don't know what to do <laughs> yeah th- those are our first world problems when you're on a stage or a venue so big that right you know, your 100 foot cat is uh, not long enough yeah the reason we went to the floor models were because i didn't want to deal with the poe injectors for mm-hmm. the longer than 20 foot cable run of the the cat for the the control pedal mm-hmm so yeah, we went with the floor and I, I like them. I haven't really run into any issues. One of them is a little bit wonky. I think there's a, a known issue with the internal battery in it. Cause every time mm-hmm. we start it up, it says the clock is wrong and it needs to be reset, but I mean, it works fine, but what's your, what's your experience? I with- guess here's, here was my, my personal squall with that with when they came out with that. Now I think it's a fantastic product for like the average guitar player, a worship guitar player, somebody who plays out at their local bar or whatever. But for the touring musician type thing that we're doing, here was what I saw. I shouldn't say wrong, but what I didn't like having to set up the deployment aspect was, like you said, you have to send signal cable, you know, to and from it. And again, from the wireless. So, and power. So with just having the remote, with the the thing in the rack and just the remote it's just the cat five out to it and the little power over ethernet thing in the back of the rack which i will agree is yes that dumb little power over ethernet thing is a pain in the neck i really wish they just made it power over ethernet out of the back of the kemper like especially i feel like they should have made a version two or seven thousand or whatever it is that they like upgraded it to have it but they didn't so yeah it's a total pain in the neck but for me, I was like, I'd rather just send the Cat5 out in the remote versus having to send XLR, dealing with the wireless signal in and out, because I just saw, for me, that's setup time. And that kind of turns around to how can I be faster, better, stronger now? And 
yeah, that's what I don't like about those kind of all-in-one on the on the floor units. Because we were originally our two guitar players had the rack kempers and our bass player just had like pedals and the drop pedal and a tuner like the like a lot of bass players have. And we just were looking into getting them, whether it be an Axifes or, or a Kemper or whatever. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, we could just get them the all-in-one thing. It would be easy. And then I thought it kind of defeats the purpose, especially with the wireless. You still have to run that instrument cable out and yada, yada, yada. And it just kind of was, I'd rather just spend a little bit of extra cash or whatever it was to get the remote and the rack unit and everything just be thin. Yeah, if I had to run individual cables, I probably would have had a rope around my neck at this point, but I did build those looms. And the nice thing is the fan length on those looms, uh, you know, to, for the XLRs and then the the instruments uh, signal, the the fan is only like 12 or 14 inches. Right. I staggered them all, you know, so it, it lines up nice when you... Right, so it lines up nice, right. Yeah. And right, and you did that the right way where you made them like an all-in-one loom where it's not like you have to, okay, here, I have to run stereo XLR and the instrument cable and a power cable. Like, at least it's just like an a, a all-in-one kind of kind of thing. Like, it would be anyways, just like a single Cat 5. So you're doing it as clean and neat as possible. And I guess where my PTSD came from with that was just dealing with the pedal board situation where it was like, all right, I got a freaking, I got the wireless in the Kemper rack, but the pedal board's on the floor. So I got to sit, it just was one of those, you're working against yourself in, in a way. And so that was the seller for me with going with the, for the all the, the rack mounted version. So, the upside yeah. for me was I gained six u or even more of rack space you mean rack space that's a, that's something i like that that's the catcher the ticker is well not only do i have to carry the rack space but the pedal board that, that is right you are correct in that aspect yeah this is the the first two where i didn't have any drawers in our stage rack uh because we had the kempers in there and i just really was like besides myself you know chasing after everything so now this tour, we were able to have a couple of drawers, which was great because I could put all the in-ear packs, all the wireless sticks for the mics in there, yeah. you know, the paddles, uh, all the good stuff just sat in the rack. And that was, that made it worth the the hassle of having to build that loom. And, yeah. and then the other upside is I, I trained, I'm using air quotes, Randy and Merritt to uh, take care of their own cables. So right. I, I color coded everything and I put colors on the patch panel on the back of the rack. So they know like... Right. Randy's red, Merritt's blue, and stuff will only fit in one spot. <laughs> then... Right. Like just, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Put, put it in the right hole here, you know, just get it in, get it home. Like, yeah. It, it's same thing. Like I have, like I told my guys, like, all right, yours is the top one. Yours is the middle one. Like just put your cable in the top one. Just know you're the top, <laughs> you know, yeah. can't mess it up. Yep. I'm sure once we start breaking into like, spares like i eventually want to get uh, like uh more guitar wireless channels and the, the radial switchers and maybe a spare temper at least for one of them for you know all three of them for who and when knock on wood goes down that we have something like that uh ready and available but you know time and place is always a, a never-ending gear collection always 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 the trailers aren't getting any bigger. At least ours isn't. So I keep having yeah. these ideas, but we fill it to the the top and yeah. all the way to the back. It's so funny you say that because I feel like I I've been doing this thing where I, you know I, I'm trying to make my my job easier by like 
okay, I have the big, the big mothership rack, and then we have a, a big drum boat, and then we have a guitar vault, and then my front of house console. So really my, my load-in is only a handful of big items and a couple of cable pelicans. Um, but my problem is floor space in the trailer now is like I have the big drum boat and a big guitar vault and a big god rack and a big this and a big that and it's like so now my actual and everything's too heavy to flip or to live on top of something so it's like my actual floor space in the trailer is is, is shrinking even though my like my deployment and what I have going to like I got this cable makes it easier and since everything's all in one it makes it faster so I'm like almost working against myself in the trailer aspect where I'm, I'm running out of floor space quick. So, yeah, it's, it's funny. We joke, you know, like we barely Tetris everything into the trailer and then somehow over the course of the tour, we find a little extra space, but then, you know, it's full again when the next tour starts. So it's, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Like, and that'll never change. Like that's a for forever going forever going thing. Like we, um, and I always try to make a, like a dedicated merch zone in the very front, front of the trailer. So it's like, we're not on top of each other, like trying to load in or load out at the same time. It's like, this is your space and this is our space. And, you know, it's, there's no, and even that sometimes is like, man, I'm, I'm jam full. And now you're the merch, like what I call the merch closet, like, you know, the front door to the trailer you know, the side door or whatever. I always call that like the merch closet. And I have all like a ratchet strap right off behind that, that door there. So it's like, that's the closet. And then the back side is all the gear stuff. And even that sometimes like, we'll get a big merch order and I'll be like, oh shoot, man, we're, we're really over tipping the, the trailer here. We're coming up on an hour here, which is crazy because time just sort of flew by, but I wanted to ask you a couple of, uh, point and shoot questions here so uh with your bear tooth run what were some of your more favorite shows that you did uh per- venues in particular or just shows that you felt really went well uh what were some of your favorites uh my favorite uh i would say overall favorite um as far as like just big show great big day was that incarceration um it was like the first of the big danny wimmer festivals that we did on that run and it just crushed i thought i had a, a fairly good mix um, you know on my end like everybody showed up did their job like it just like the, the wind wasn't blowing too hard like it was the perfect setup for like an outdoor festival day you know it wasn't like you know, like everything you wanted to go right just did um but as far as like actually on the tour um there was i would like to say house of blues anaheim is just always like a really like it's just a fantastic menu it's a, a great pa the rig slams uh the green rooms are great it's clean that's a real fun one uh in denver we played this uh the room in denver that was just a fantastic rig just beats you up like danny always like there was a, a funny thing danny would say on the tour like if we were in a, in a room that sounded good he'd be like if you can't do it in here go home like if you can't make this room sound good just get the hell out of here which was so true it's like there were some days that were just fantastic the Fillmore Philly fantastic room just sounded great awesome show um looked good so yeah there were there was a bunch on that tour I I can't say there was like a particular favorite because they were all you know I I'll say this there wasn't a bad show on the tour there was never like a day I was like fuck this. Oh, this sucks. Oh, screw this guy. You know, it was every show was 
yeah, this is great. This is fun, you know? So it was, we did have the fun of the, the PA that was a little wonky in Fargo. Oh, right. Yeah. Besides that day, that was like, I want to say that doesn't count. Cause that was like, yeah, that was a weird one. We had this day in, in, in Fargo at this, it was like a brewery or something. Right. And, um, outdoor stage and they had this EV uh, X line or something. What's that right? Called? X-ray. X-ray. Yeah. XLC. And, uh, which, you know, we've all mixed on them. They're, they're fine you know they're not the most fun or pleasant pa in the world but they'll do the job you know they're a little bright but you know i don't think it was necessarily for an outdoor event because it rained all that day and then by the time we got up there it was just there was no mids it just sounded completely hockey and really far away and it just was it was not right and i remember coming out and watching your show being like, all right, this guy is going to kick my butt because he's got the D live and he's got the freaking SS out the or the that cop you had with you. Um, oh, the Portico too. Yeah, the Portico. I saw. Yeah, I was like, he's got the Portico and he's got the freaking new D live, and I was like, this guy is going to kick our ass out here. And then I went out there and I was like, there's no way this mix sounds like this with all that stuff. It sounds so like, and it and it was weird. And then when I was like, it's got to be it's got to be the PA. And then as soon as I turned my iPod on, like during our changeover, I was like, I knew, I instantly knew, I was like, I knew it couldn't be him. I was like, there's no way his rig sounded like that because the PA was just gone with all that rain. It did something to it and it just sounded terrible by that time. But That, that was one where I was pulling my hair out because I got up there, there was an opening act and I listened to them and they sounded off to me. Mm-hmm. And then I got up there and we didn't really get a sound check or anything. And yeah. We fired up and I was like, Oh, what am I, what's wrong? What's wrong? And yeah. I, did, I didn't have smart fired up, you know, so I was not able to really RTA or anything like that. But yeah, when I saw your RTA curve, I was like, ah, yep. Something is, something's really amiss. Yeah, no, it definitely, it was. And then I remember when, when I, when we ran into you guys this the second time, which was that festival, I was like, I got to go back out there. I got to know it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it was totally that PA. It was just that, that, that I have to reassure myself that it wasn't me or him, that it really was the rig that day. You know, it just, it was beating me up mentally. And, and it just goes to show you that, you know, none of us are perfect and none of us really like know for sure until you like have to like, okay, all right. You have to test yourself and, and, explore ask you know questions you know is this sound right to you because it don't sound right to me it's funny uh you talk about the second festival where we where we were together at incarceration and that was mm-hmm. that huge l acoustics pa i think you counted like a hundred and over a hundred l acoustic speakers yeah it was like 120 some odd boxes it was crazy it was all k1 sb28 so there were like 32 SB28 subs across the front plus 16 flowing. Like it was just monster PA. But we we were the first band on the stage and we got shorted on our load-in time. And I kept looking at front of house to see if I could see my console getting rolled out to front of house. And I asked oh, right. I asked stagehands like half a dozen times, not not exaggerating, is my console at front of house? And they're like, yeah, it's already out there. I said, I, I don't see it. You know, I could I was looking the hundred yards back to the front of house tent and I didn't see it. Yeah. And so I got everything done on stage and I'm like, all right, I'm going to run to front of house. I'm going to fire up and we'll get started. And I got front of house and my console was not there. Yeah. Not there. And I remember like, I specifically, I was backstage and I saw, what was, what's your singer's name? What's Mixie. Her name? Mixie. Yeah. 
because I like I was literally walking by as she's like pointing she's like uh he needs that like now and I was like this is getting interesting right now I was like that is his console isn't it and then like the guy like picked it up and started going out that way and I was like Jesus Christ this is yeah gonna be something but you pulled off though I mean you really did a shoot that's that's amazing that's like why like you'll you notice like the, even that day like and i don't know how like appropriate this is or not but like those festival days for me like the biggest winner is like waking up early first thing in the morning getting on that like meeting your stage manager meeting your front of house guy and like and just asking like if it's okay that you load your your front of house out there and if there's at any point you know two and a half minutes that you could steal the tails to tune like that is saved my ass on especially all those Danny Wimmer festivals is at least having that let me have 60 seconds to make sure I can turn on my iPod and at least know when I unmute I'm not blowing up the PA or it's not enough or, or whatever you know or the highs aren't kicking you in the teeth or the low is not empty or invisible or whatever so for me like the biggest thing is getting out there early flipping a console and just being like after like hey as soon as headliner is done if there's like a few minutes before doors where i can steal the pa and listen to a song is that cool and i don't want to say nine times out of ten because every time it happened where they they've given it to me luckily but yeah that's been a, a, a big winner for me is just getting out there and at the very least tuning is is will save you on those days yeah that was my goal uh but they got us loaded from our from the staging area up to the stage uh like 30 minutes before we were supposed to play right yeah late yeah yeah because the vehicles that transport all the gear were in use with other bands and you know we were we were the low man on the totem pole so we had to wait for everybody else and then by that time we just had to make the most of it so yeah that's like the one thing i'm kind of worried about having like the d live system going forward is i know you have to have the stage box to like you know use it at all so versus with the pro one i could literally just flip the car i didn't have to be on deck at all i could just throw my console out front so as long as they were cool with yeah you can bring your console out front it's got to get out here anyways so like for me i could do that now i'm trying to think in my brain what's the workaround do i have it so i could pull my little cdm rack out and then literally bring the rack to front of house do a tune and then bring the rack back to a stage when you need to like that's my only workaround is you would have to bring the cdm rack to front of house or be able to load it on stage and, and power it up with a snake and everything yeah that or have like a dm zero that just stays with your front of house stage, yeah i thought of that too is that you'd have to buy a separate dm zero um which would be nice for maybe like if you were going to go crazy and introduce like outboard gear or something like, you know, you had the one portico, but if you wanted to go nuts with like a bunch of 500 series stuff on vocals or something, you know, and have like half a dozen things or a dozen things, whatever it is, it'd be cool to have like a DM zero out front with the, with the little cards and for IO and my brain already threw that battle. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, my brain did too. And then my pocketbook or my wallet said, uh, think, guess again, Steve. <laughs> yeah right like i started like going on reverb and i was like well i could get a little 500 series lunchbox use and then there's all these used like me 500 series and then some off-brand things and you know whatever like stuff you can get yourself in trouble with and i'm like i 
got the waves rig anyways. Like, let me just get that far. You know, let me just get in trouble that much first because I'm sure I'm not going to need half this stuff anyway. Last thing I want to, well, second to last thing I want to ask you, we're going to go long on this podcast, but I think it's worth it. Uh, what, are you, what are you liking about the DLive now that you've spent a little time playing around with it at your house versus like the, the Pro One? So I have just the, as you know, I have just the CDM32 rack. I don't have the Surface yet. So I've really just been playing with it with like the laptop and some studio monitors that I have. So I've just been listening to some iPod and then quote unquote building a scene, kind of just labeling stuff and putting stuff in the in the, the fader strip strips that I think I'd want them to be in and, and whatnot. I like it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I think once I get the surface, the surface, and actually get to, you know, mix a show or two with Wage War, I'll be, I'll really know how much I love it or kind of eh about it. Um, but I, I'm almost positive I'm gonna, I'm gonna love it, love it. I think it's also gonna come in handy a lot here at home too. Uh, for the home, home gig I have, I work for a theater called the Lyric Theater, so it's a little 500 seated house. We do lots of plays, orchestra tribute bands and stuff so i'll be able to use it there for monitors or if i want to use it instead of our pro 2 or something upstairs um, and i'll be able to rent it out down here so they'll, they'll, i'll have plenty of use for it at home too absolutely but it's been fantastic so far like i said i've just been tinkering around with it and breaking it trying to fix it save a scene you know like i said you, it's all about the getting yourself in trouble now while you're at home so when you're out there you know in front of 2000 people you're not scratching your head like oh shit uh, where's that button again because it'll definitely happen as you know it yep absolutely and then lastly you're a huge north face guy uh <laughs> I, I watched you on instagram going to the north face store and and buying buying uh north face stuff uh what drew you to that and what's what's your favorite piece of north face gear uh so the north face for me is kind of like Man, it's it's just like the best brand as far as like touring goes for, you know, like we beat our clothes up, you know, we work hard, we're in them, you know, 20 hours a day, we're sweating in them, we're freezing in them, and we're tearing it up between, you know, brushing up against cases and in the truck and stuff. So it gets, it gets beat up. And for me, the North Face was a brand that, you know, no matter how many times you washed it, it would keep its form, it wouldn't get holes in it and stuff. So it really just was a great durability you know clothing brand to that held up within you know for what we do and then just naturally being the cartoon that i am i don't really like the chain like once i get in my comfort zone of doing something i like you know i use the same thing so i just well if i'm gonna buy a t-shirt i'm just gonna keep buying the north face and before i knew it like literally all i own is the north face so i I own a lot of it. Like, I don't even know how many t-shirts or I have like several jackets and stuff. I did on this last tour, just splurge. And I just got a, one of their uh, rolling duffel bags for luggage. Um, so that's kind of like my new favorite piece. I have a really nice fancy luggage bag, but honestly, the essential, the absolutely everyday essential from them is just like their regular baseball cap. Like I'm wearing right now, um, the snapback. I mean, I, I just gotta have, I'm an everyday hat guy and, the North Face hat is just the classic go-to every single day. I'm a huge fan of their uh, technical pants because they they dry quickly, you know. So if you have like have to wash them on the fly or whatever. Oh yeah, man! I learned a trick. Uh, I think from Robert Scoville was, or it may not have been him. So I apologize if it's not Robert. But 
carry a little bit of woolite detergent with you because it doesn't really suds up and you can wash anything mm. in a sink with it and it rinses really clean really easily. And then a little piece of tie line. And as long as you have te good technical clothing, it'll dry almost immediately. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I love North face pants. Like I'm wearing them right now. So oh, yeah. I just yeah. had a, I had to uh, ask you about that. Yeah, no, I even like, cause I have all their t-shirts, but even again, even on this last tour, like I bought two or three pairs of their, they're stretchy, thin tactical pants just because they are so much just easier to work in. They dry fast. Like you said, if you just need to hang them up or something, you can sleep in them, wake up and just be loading in that. There you go. You're already in it. And uh, so shout out the North Face. Give us uh, an endorsement or something because we could use it. I'll be sure to tag them in this when we uh, publish it. So you do the same and okay. maybe they'll get the message. Oh yeah. I'm going to have like one of my buddies in Porter, like wage work crew on one of mine, just because just so I can officially be like, Oh yeah, it's, you know, a real wage war thing. Yeah. Then they definitely have to sponsor you if that's the case. Right. Absolutely. I just need to get a picture of, of myself, like mixing on Mount Everest, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get a deal. <laughs> take your, uh, take your titanium surface up there. Cause it's nice and light. You don't have to worry about, you know, hauling anything heavy and, and, you know, right. two birds, one stone. Starting avalanches up here. Yeah, exactly. I do want to give one last quick tip to anybody who's listening that might be new to touring, which is do not overpack your suitcase. I I way overpacked on this tour because I was wearing, uh, because I had my North Face technical pants. I brought two pair of those, a couple pairs of North Face shorts that, you know, same material. I didn't touch half the stuff in my suitcase. Oh, yeah. Because if you buy good clothes and you have them, they don't stink. You need one good pair of jeans. You need maybe a pair of shorts or two. It depend like, and it really depends on the tour you're on. If it's like a normal, like if it's not a winter tour, I'll say. Like if it's not a cold tour, pair of jeans, pair of shorts. Like you said, a bunch of those like kind of tactical pants, like the comfy stuff that you're gonna be living in anyways. Otherwise, yeah, you're never gonna touch. Like yeah, there's jeans and stuff that I've brought on tour before that you never ever or shirts even that's a huge thing for me it's i bring the i try to do laundry like two weeks at a time or 10 days at a time so i'll bring like 12 or 14 t-shirts and pairs of underwear and socks and everything so at least i've got a window of about two weeks of laundry but as far as like pants goes like yeah don't overstock pants don't overdo like you can never overdo underwear and socks you'll always burn through those absolutely but like jackets and, and pants and stuff you'll never wear stuff you'll pack stuff you'll never ever wear so definitely you know and, and pants you can wear for two three days in a row so yeah, yeah. whatever yep all right last question and then we'll get going uh where are you off to what's what's next for you and wage war Wage War, we have Rockville here in Daytona, Florida, uh, which will be awesome. That'll be like a really kick-ass, like hometown festival, outdoor festival for us. Um, and I won't release too many details, but there will be some surprises because uh, we were headlining that stage that night. So it'll be a pretty kick-ass Wage War production. Winky face, you don't want to miss that one. Uh, and then in December sometime, I believe we're supposed to do another one of our kind of like end of the year show type things. I don't know if it's been announced yet um, or not. I know there's rumors of something like that brewing. Uh, so I'm sorry, Wage War, if I'm announcing something pre too soon, uh, don't fire me. Uh, but yeah, we usually do something like that. 
Uh, and then we do like a cruise in January that uh, Shiprock cruise. And then the next year happens. So as far as wage war goes, the rest of the year is pretty quiet, just a festival and like a show or two. And I have some some homework here at the Lyric that I that I work at and some paddle boarding to do with the dog. And uh, that's about it. Awesome. I love it. All right. Well, let's call this a podcast. We'll wrap it up here. Uh, it was really great talking with you. I'm so glad I got to meet you on the tour and that we got to hang out a couple of times, learn some good secrets from you and some tips and tricks. And I hope I get to see you out on the road before too long and pick up a couple of more. But until then, stay safe. And uh, thanks again for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Anytime. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mixmasters. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend. Or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mixmasters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Sure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.